Thank you, Larry. No truer words have been sung. That's a straight-up truth there. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 3 once again. At the end of last week's message, we finally started getting into the good news. For the last six weeks, we've been looking at the bad news of the human condition that Paul has begun his letter to the Romans with, and I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we finally got through it. I mean, some of that stuff can be downright depressing. You read what Paul says, and you go, man, he's right. We are a sorry bunch of folks. I was talking last week to a couple friends, and we were just talking about just how sorry people can be. Not anybody specifically, just people in general. And uh, I said, you know, it's a good thing I'm not God because I would have wiped us all out by now. Sometimes I'm amazed that God hasn't done that. It amazes me that God has put up with us as long as he has. Amazes me that he allows people to spit in his face the way that we do. God could so easily just go, you know what, I don't have to put up with this and just thump us away that easy and that quick. And he would be right and just in doing that because we all deserve it. The truth is God couldn't allow, couldn't allow us to continue on in our depraved, dishonoring, sinful state without doing something about it. And he has done something about it. And this text we're about to read this morning is going to tell us just exactly what God has done. We're about to read the gospel. So if you would stand with me as we read this. Romans, we're going to start in verse 21. The bulletin says we're going to 31, but we're not going to have time for that today. We're going to go through verse 26. So let's read this together. Paul writes, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all those who believe. God, if we are going to be changed this morning, Lord, I know that it's not going to come through eloquent speech or funny stories or creative analogies, but it's going to come because of the power that is contained in the announcement of what you have done. So, God, I'm just going to make that announcement this morning and trust that your power will be at work in us and among us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to look at this text pretty close and go to it basically phrase by phrase. And it's important to be aware that 
what Paul is saying here, he is laying a foundation for everything else that he's going to say in this letter. And at times we're going to come back to some of what he says here. You know, we left off last week with the first line of this text, which says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And I told you that based on the original Greek, a more accurate translation of this verse would be the condition that God accepts has been made visible. For the last three chapters, Paul has been showing the condition that God doesn't accept. He doesn't accept good behavior. He doesn't accept just a knowledge of what's right. You know, before Jesus, no one really knew for sure what it was that God accepted. I mean, some thought they knew, and there were hints along the way. There were types and shadows and prophecies and rules and regulations about what pleases God, but they were all partial. No one knew for sure what exactly it was that God accepted. They could just guess at best. And hope that it was their obedience and their good behavior that God was going to accept. But in Jesus, God finally made it known clearly the condition that he accepts. And so now we are discovering what that means for us today. Now right after Paul says that this has been made visible, the first thing that he immediately says right after that is that it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, if this is the first thing that Paul says about Jesus being made visible, then it's probably pretty important. And what Paul is saying here is that the human condition that God accepts, which is Jesus, is what the law and the prophets in the Old Testament had always been about and pointing to. You know, when we think of the gospel, we usually limit it to the earthly life of Jesus. But the gospel does not start with the book of Matthew with a baby in Bethlehem. It actually starts in Genesis 1-1 because Jesus is the whole point of biblical history. He is what the Old Testament has always been about, always pointing to and looking forward to, witnessed by the law and the prophets. You can fill this in if you're following along in your notes there. The law was God's standard. This is what God required in order to be right with him. So what this is saying is that God's standard is met in Jesus. The prophets were about promises made. And so this is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. And then verse 22, even the righteousness of God. One of the points last week is that no one is able to be, quote, good enough for God. There are plenty of good people in hell. And the reason for that is because God doesn't require us to be good. He requires us to be righteous, holy, and perfect. I talked about how he doesn't compare us to others to decide whether or not we are going to get in. What he compares us to is himself, his righteousness, his 
perfection. In Leviticus, in Leviticus 11.44, he says, You are to be holy as I am holy. Peter would later quote this same verse in his letter saying, Be like the Holy One who called you, for it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And so verse 21 says that the condition God accepts has been made visible. And verse 22 is saying it is the very condition that he requires, the very condition that he compares us to, his own very righteousness. And so the question then is, how do we get it? Because if God's comparing me to himself, I'm in trouble. Because there's no way I can live up to that. So, so how do I get it? If this holy as God condition that he requires has been made visible, has been made available, then how am I going to attain that? What do I have to do? How do we get it? And he tells us with the very next statement, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now this is an absolutely radical statement that Paul has made here. Up until now, everyone's assumed that their standing with God was based on their behavior. It was all about how good, how obedient, how well one observed the law and the rituals. But here Paul's saying it's not about behavior, it's about belief. Believing that Jesus is God's standard. This was such a radical claim so much against what anyone had ever heard or believed before that Paul will spend the entire next chapter, chapter 4, explaining how this is even possible. And then the next statement Paul makes here is equally as radical. The question now is who? If a, a, a way to meet God's standard has been made available through faith, then who has it been made available to? Who is able to get in on this? I mean, surely it must be the Jews, right? Because they were, quote, God's chosen people. They were the ones set apart. They were the ones that Paul said earlier were entrusted with the oracles of God. But no, he says, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. It's available to everyone. In Christ, there is no distinction between race, color, culture, nations, nothing. You see, up to this point, there are basically two kinds of people in the world. There were Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. The Jews were considered to be in, and the Gentiles were considered to be out when it came to God. But here Paul is saying that's no longer the case. God has done something that absolutely changes everything. Now anyone can be in simply through faith in Jesus. You know, one of the biggest criticisms of Christianity is that it's too exclusive. It's too close-minded and intolerant. I'm telling you, that argument is laughable at best because if you look at it Christianity has got to be the most inclusive religion in the entire world I mean every other religion is all about certain criteria that has to be met in order for you to be considered a part of that religion Christianity says whosoever will come whosoever will 
Everyone is included and invited to come to Jesus. You don't have to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way. Jesus invites everyone to come as you are. You cannot be more inclusive and intolerant than, intolerant than that. Every other religion says you change yourself up and, and fall in line right and then you can come in. Jesus says, just come in as you are, and I will change you. And then in the next verse, verse 23, Paul explains how this is possible. How it's possible for the Gentiles to be just as in and just as right with God as the Jews. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here Paul is essentially saying, now, just in case you think God has just decided to change the rules in the middle of the game, let me assure you he hasn't because the truth is none of you Jews were ever in to begin with. It never was about being good enough and obedient enough. It was all about exposing your wicked heart and showing all of us that we all fall short. None of us can be good enough. And I just love verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace. We're going to learn some words, some long words that you usually only hear in church. And the first one here is justified. Being justified means to be made right. Being made right with God is not something anyone can earn or achieve. Like Paul has already shown, not even good behavior and obedience is going to make you right with God. Being made right with God is a gift that is given by His grace. By believing in faith that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God, by God's grace, He makes you right. But it's not just you believe in Jesus and he makes you right. I mean, something had to happen in order for that to even be possible. Because what about all that sin that Paul talked about in the previous chapters? Did God just overlook all that? Does he not do anything about it? No, he did do something about it. Very next line. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means the act of buying something back. Because of our wicked, guilty condition, we owed God for that. We owed Him a lot. We owed Him His glory that we stole for ourselves. We owed Him His worship that we put on other stuff. We owed him his honor that we took from him. We owed him our lives as the penalty and the punishment for our sin. It is a debt that we aren't able to pay, and so we deserve to be punished for not being able to pay God what we owe. But Jesus paid our debt for us at the cross. Our sin couldn't just be overlooked. It had to be punished. And punished it was at the cross. Our faith in Jesus puts us in Christ. Which means we are in his righteous condition. In 
His standing with God in His honor and His glory. We're given everything that God requires, which is only found in Jesus. Our sinful condition cuts us off from God, but Jesus came and bought us back through His shed blood. We are redeemed. Verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Propitiate means to make someone pleased or less angry by giving what is desired. Something needed to be given or sacrificed in order to appease God's wrath towards sin. I love that line in the song, In Christ Alone, that says, Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. This is a very important aspect of the gospel to understand. This is one of those things that if you truly believe this, if you truly believe that all of God's wrath was satisfied through Jesus at the cross, then it can dramatically affect how you relate to God. Next point, all of God's wrath was satisfied in the death of Jesus. Now, most of us get that, at least in theory. But just how far that truth goes is what we tend to have a little bit of trouble with. See, many Christians live in fear and guilt, thinking that they are somehow either being now or will be punished for a particular sin that they committed. And if that's you, then you don't sincerely believe that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. You don't really believe that God's wrath was completely satisfied at the cross. You apparently think that God was holding a little bit of his wrath and his punishment back just in case you happen to sin later on. If God's punishment for sin was totally absorbed at the cross, then there is none left for you. There's none left for you. I guess the real question is, well, how much of your sin was punished? Is it just the sins that you committed up to salvation, or does it also include all the sins that you commit even post-salvation? Or could it mean, as some seem to believe, that the ability to avoid punishment is there as long as you confess that sin and ask for forgiveness? As in, if you neglect to confess a particular sin, you are going to be punished for that. And that actually seems to line up more with the way many people relate to God. But here's the question I have. When Jesus took our place and offered himself up as the acceptable sacrifice for our sin in the year A.D. 33, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them, right? So the next point. Which of your sins have been punished at the cross? All of them. The sins that you're still going to commit tomorrow and next year, were they not in the future when Jesus paid for them at the cross? Yes. He absorbed punishment for all your sin. 
that they've already been dealt with, there's nothing left for you to be afraid of walking around in guilt about. Now, does this mean that we don't need to confess our sins to God and ask for His forgiveness? No, that's not what I'm saying. See, here's what we have to keep in mind. We are not in a contract with God. We are in a relationship with God. See, if I do something that I know is going to hurt my wife or or that did hurt her in some way, I know that she's still going to love me. And I know that she's going to forgive me for that because we have a strong relationship. But it's because of the fact that we do have a strong relationship that I'm going to go to her. And I'm going to own up for what it is that I've done. And I'm going to ask for her forgiveness. I know that technically I don't need to do that in order for her to forgive me. But it just reinforces the fact That we are in a meaningful relationship and not just a marriage contract. See, a lot of people view what Jesus did as just simply a contract. But this is a relationship. It's an interactive relationship. Let's read on. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word forbearance refers to God's patience. The definition of it is to refrain from the enforcement of something that is due. And so Paul is saying that God demonstrated his righteousness by holding back his punishment for sin until Jesus came. Verse 26 goes right along with it. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God couldn't hold back his wrath forever. He is too holy, too worthy, too glorious glorious to allow sin and the continual belittlement of his name. And so he did do something about it. Later on in chapter 5, Paul says, at the right Time, Christ died for the ungodly. He wouldn't be a just God if he just let sin go unpunished. In Jesus, he demonstrated both his justice and his mercy. And then the last part of that verse says that he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that phrase right there, that one line, is what separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. See, you can look at different aspects of Christianity and see similarities in other religions. I mean, there are other religions who had a God being in human form. There are other religions who have a hero that came back from the dead. There's even one part of the Hindu religion in India, one God that was supposedly born of a virgin. I mean, Satan is good. He gets in there and and tries to make counterfeits look very similar to the truth. The one aspect of Christianity that separates it from all others is grace. That instead of giving us what we deserved, God gave us what we needed. Every other religion is about what man has to do to be justified 
It's about following certain requ- requirements, rules, and rituals that we've got to observe in order to be considered right and in. Those are the things that you need to do in order to justify yourself and appease whatever God it is to, to make sure that they're not mad at you. Christianity is the only one where God himself is the justifier. That he recognizes you can't justify yourself, so I am going to be the one to justify you. And it is this aspect of Christianity that proves that it's got to be the truth. It's got to be the right one because as we've looked at for several weeks, no one is able to justify themselves. None of us are able to even come close to meeting God's requirement of perfection. Next point. Our only hope for being made right with God, anybody's only hope for that is if God makes us right. In order for us to be right, we need God to make us right. That's our only hope. And that's exactly what happens when we put our faith in Jesus. Now then, question is, why would God do all this? I mean, why would he do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves? Why would he make us right when we weren't even close to being right, when we couldn't make ourselves right? And most people will probably say because he loves us so much or because he wanted to be in relationship with us. And yes, God loves us immensely. But the primary reason God did this wasn't just so we can be in relationship. God in his infinite perfection was anything but lonely. The clue as to why God would do this is in the first line of verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. See, many people view the gospel as God's reaction to the way that we have just messed things up. They'll say that the brokenness of this world wasn't the original plan. But we got in there, Adam and Eve got in there and messed up the plan. And so God had to send Jesus to fix it. As if God looked down and went, oh man, I wasn't expecting Adam to do that. Now I need a plan B. Jesus, why don't you go down there and just fix everything? That's not how it went down at all. God has been in control of every detail from the beginning. From Adam until Jesus was all about God creating a situation where, that we would be hopeless in. That we could take no credit in whatsoever. He created a situation where no one would be able to go, well, look what I did. He created a situation where we could only go, look what God did. Last point, why did God do this? Primarily for his glory. That's ultimately why God did it. Why he saved us by his grace. Remember, in our broken condition, we robbed God of his glory. So God created a situation where he was going to get his glory back from man. He created a situation where we couldn't take any credit in it at all. All the credit has to go to him because he did it all. 
We don't have a part in anything we can say, well, here's what I did to be saved. No, God did it. God opened your eyes. God even is the one that gave you the faith to believe. It's all his doing. I mean, you see, God doesn't want to send people to hell. Even though he does, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, he is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But those that do go to hell, I mean, it is still just, but ultimately that's not what God wants because he wants what he ultimately deserves, which is worship. He desires to be glorified, honored, and worshiped for who he is. That's what he created us for. And so if someone goes to hell, they are completely cut off from God. There's no way they're able to worship him and give him the glory that he is due, the glory that they were created to give him. I mean, nobody celebrates justice. I mean, when you get pulled over and a cop gives you a ticket... You're not going, thank you so much, officer. You just made my day. No inmate is sitting in prison writing songs about the judge for putting them away for 20 years. We don't celebrate justice. What we celebrate is mercy. And so that's why God was patient and didn't just wipe everybody out. If he did, his created beings would not be able to give him what he created them to give him. In order for God to get from some what he created us to give, we had to be saved by his grace. By being made right in Christ, it enables us to live out our purpose. We're not able to do that apart from him. That's why he saved us. It wasn't as much for us as it was for him. And I'll close with this Old Testament verse that was speaking forward to this very truth. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. That's the whole reason for the gospel, for the glory, honor, and worship of God. And next week, we'll look at the rest of these verses that finish out chapter 3. And we'll also start in chapter 4, getting into the incredible role that faith plays in our salvation. Let's pray. God, some of these truths, Lord, are just (laughs) sometimes the news seems too good to be true. God, it's not the way that we relate to one another. It doesn't sit right with our flesh. So, God, we need your spirit to be able to, to see the truth in what you have done, the truth in what and who you have made us. God, I pray for those in here today who have been so bound up in that performance, in that rule following, 
been bound up in so much religion, trying to gain leverage with you by their behavior. Lord, I pray that the truth of your grace would just set them free this morning. God, I pray that the truth of your mercy would come so alive to us and hit us so hard, God, that our only response to that can be worship, celebration, and praise to you. Lord, for anyone in here who has been relying on anything other than Jesus for their hope, God, I pray that right now you would open their eyes to the futility of what they have placed their hope in and let them see Jesus as the only way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, for those of us who have heard these things before, God, I pray that they would just become fresh to us. Like we're hearing it and reading it again for the first time. Lord, would you return us back to our first love? God, let us not get complacent anymore. But God, let us get excited again about what you've done, that we have been made right when there's no way we could be right. That Jesus absorbed all our punishment. Now we are free to just live for you, to live out the purpose that we were created for. God, would you stir within us, Lord, more affection for you. Just draw us into you by your love and your grace. Holy Spirit, would you come and just have your way, move in our hearts. Do your work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.